I'm Steve Morgan, founder of Cybersecurity Ventures and editor-in-chief at Cybercrime Magazine. I'm here today with Susan Kosky, Chief Security Officer at PNC, a Fortune 500 company and one of the largest diversified financial services institutions in the United States. This interview is sponsored by Know Before, the world's largest security awareness training and simulated phishing platform that helps you manage the ongoing problem of social engineering. To learn more about Know Before, visit knowbefore.com. Susan, welcome. Great to have you on with us today. Thank you, Steve. I'm glad to be with um, the cybercrime team today. Just for everyone's background, I'm the Chief Information Security Officer at PNC, Financial Services headquartered in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And, you know, while PNC is a top six bank, we really like to think of ourselves as a Main Street bank that has innovative capabilities for any Main Street USA person that wants to bank with us or use our commercial institutional services. Uh, but here, I actually cover all the information security functions and some converged functions, which cover physical fraud and cyber. And prior to PNC, I've held um, security roles at Aetna, which is now CBS, Synovus, as well as the Bank of New York Mellon. And, and I think just one more thing about myself, um, Steve, and team is I really am passionate about people and how do we really be innovative and efficient in what we do in security so that our people can do the more interesting and curious work that they want to do. And we really try to help automate the mundane so that they can open their mind to do that more curious and interesting work. Well, it's great to have you on with us, Susan. You know, you read the uh, periodicals in our industry, uh, CISOs think this, CISOs think that. There's a lot of, you know, patterns and trends. You know, it's altogether different, and we find that to be true. And we actually are face-to-face uh, with a CISO, especially in some of the larger corporations, and can talk about the market conditions. So today, we want to get your perspective on some statistics, and then we're going to get into people which you brought up. So let's kick off with cybercrime, because that's uh, why cybersecurity exists We put out a report, Susan, this was back in 2016, and it raised a lot of eyebrows. We were looking ahead at cybercrime damages. We assessed 2015 at about $3 trillion, and looking ahead 2021, we predicted $6 trillion. And a lot of people pushed back on that. In fact, before some media outlets wanted to publish that data, they needed to vet it and to talk that through with us. And, you know, they then were were comfortable, did publish the material. And it's interesting because now when we put figures out for 2022, uh, we put out a $7 trillion figure for 2023, $8 trillion, looking ahead to 2025, $10.5 trillion. And the pushback we're getting is those figures are way too low. Cybercrime is out of control. Um, you know, so what, what's your perspective, Susan? And it doesn't have to necessarily be in statistical terms, but uh, is it that big of a problem? You know, I think that, you know, it's just amazing when you look at those statistics and you look at the third largest economy. And, and I've used these statistics in various presentations internally because I, I think they're right. And I think to an extent that these may be underrepresented. And then when you look at just even U.S. gross domestic product, you know, these numbers, you know, when you look at your 2021 and your 2022, they average anywhere from 23 to 25 percent of U.S. GDP, right? That's a quarter of U.S. GDP. That's that's a lot. That's huge. I think, though, that the numbers may not um, necessarily be exactly, you know, where we think they are. They could be higher because... When you look traditionally at cybercrime, it was something we thought of as overseas. It's no longer overseas. Those gangs, the criminals, they're here. They're in the United States. They're operating here. They're very well funded. They run this as a bona fide business. Um, And when you look at what they're doing, they've learned the banking system incredibly well. 
but they also, I think, really perfected their craft during COVID. You know, as we had to do more and more things without seeing people, they've been able, I think, to really craft, you know, craft their craft and their trade craft and execute on that. And you, you see those gangs moving, you know, across the United States. They may be in certain areas, but I really think that it's something we have to combat as an industry. And you made a really important point earlier. You know, you're not doing fraud without a cyber channel nowadays. Even if you're writing a check, that's still going through and getting scanned through our digitized systems. So it's just been a growing trend. And I think the criminals are looking to take advantage of you know, any gap in the system um, to monetize it for their gain. So let's talk about the flip side to cybercrime, cybersecurity. Now, I don't, I don't want to date myself, but, uh, you know, back when uh, I first started out in my career, uh, I come out of the tech industry installing banks for universities, hospitals, law firms uh, in New York and South Florida. And I remember uh, there was no such thing as cybersecurity. It wasn't a word wasn't a term. Uh, a lot of people weren't even using the word information security. We were, you know, baking uh, security into these systems, you know, based on our experience, background, very little off-the-shelf products to help us do that. And now we have a, a huge market. If we just go back to, say, the early 2000s, like around 2004, 2005, the cybersecurity market was maybe a $3.5 billion market. That's very small. Uh, it's not even on the radar screen for a lot of uh, you know, analysts who you know, follow major markets. And now we're looking at uh, a market that's coming up on $2 trillion cumulatively over the next five years. So you know, what does it look like for you, Susan, being a CISO when you think back earlier in your career compared to today? Uh, are there more tools, more and better tools available to you, productized services, things you know, to help you do a better job? I think that the industry has definitely evolved from what I traditionally would call uh, you know, maybe very best of breed solutions. You know, I think your security spending really has to keep up with your risk, your risk appetite. And and it's it's not just about spending on the tools, because if you buy a tool and you can't operationalize it, then, you know, it's kind of becomes that shelfware. But I think that you really need to look at the tool sets that are out there and really what are more integrated platform stacks, like a platformification concept. So can you get, as an example, an email defense capability that's embedded that covers everything you need to, including training, as one example. And I think we as security professionals have tended to go, go to the best of breed solutions. I think there's a real shift just from, are you getting really that kind of 80% return on those best of breed solutions by pulling them together? Are you getting less than that return? And how can you look at more kind of integrated, again, platformification solutions so that you have more of those integrated platform stacks that are seamlessly integrated. When I think about that too, um, in innovation, I think that there's also a market for what's the next kind of trend or something coming. So that's where, you know, it's traditionally our venture capital firms, you know, they're funded by those VCs and they're looking at kind of the problems of the future. I think it makes sense to do kind of safe bets there and find ways that you're not necessarily iterating to parity, but you're finding a way to leapfrog um, and leapfrog, leapfrog that ahead. And as far as are we spending enough, I think, again, it's really based on the risks and the threats that your company faces. But you also have to you know, really spend in context of what your company's doing, what your senior executives re require, what your board requires. And then last but not least, there's also what I'm going to call kind of commodity items. Where have you used something like automation 
to compress gearing ratios, but allow staff to not do the mundane and shift to the more interesting? So I think it's a very complicated question. And, you know, I kind of covered that in a, a number of different ways. Yeah, well, that, and that was very helpful and insightful. So you brought up people uh, when when you first came on, Susan. Let me uh, bring people up in in this context: cyber fighters, uh, you know, cybersecurity professionals. We're in the midst of a labor crunch. Uh, we project about three and a half million positions open. For anyone who needs a, a visual on that, you know, the current state of you know opportunities, it would fill about fifty uh, NFL stadiums. I mean, it's just a, a vast number of people, and that's grown from about a million. In 2013, 2014. So over the past decade, this has been one of the fastest growing occupations. And as attractive and as lucrative as it is, we can't produce enough people. What are you seeing? So I would say that, you know, it is tough, especially when you're looking at certain skill sets. I think cloud skill sets are, you know, more difficult to find and more um, lucrative than maybe some other um, skill sets that we look for. But I think as leaders, we have to be more more creative, more innovative. Um, you know, do we always require four-year degrees? Is there an option to not have that based on experience? How do we look at maybe non-traditional types of skill sets, data science? Those folks are very good at pattern matching and can be, I think, really helpful in designing uh, detection and even preventative methods in cyber and cyber crime. And then even when you think of security awareness, psychology majors, people like that, but then also how do you really um, focus on that next early in career talent that have, you know, no bad habits, if you will, and bringing them in to solve complex problems and saying, how would you do this and how would you do it differently? We, we also, I think I've seen some posts on LinkedIn that say, hey, I applied for an entry-level job, but the entry-level job said I needed like, you know, five or six years of experience. Is that really entry-level? So I think even our job descriptions, we have to be really cautious of that and how we deliver that message because it's truly not entry-level uh, if you're saying that they need that much experience. So I think we have to be creative and innovative, but we also have to get people early in high school out there talking about why this is um, an interesting career, what you can do with it, and, and really pull all of those levers. So look at really non-traditional kinds of ways, uh, waiving four-year degrees and, you know, really saying if we're going to invest in entry-level folks, we are investing in them, but we're also allowing them to think outside the box and look at problems in a completely different way. Those are, I think, the ways that we have to do that. And I always tell my team too, like, you should know your craft your specific information security domain, and you should know who's out there in the industry and really have a bench so that when you do have opportunities to fill positions that, you know, you're really not starting from scratch. So Susan, it's hard to have a conversation at this level about cybercrime and cybersecurity without ransomware entering the discussion. It's the fastest growing type of cybercrime, which frankly surprises me. It's very disappointing. You know, we've all been trying to anticipate and prepare for this, and yet there's constantly new ransomware gangs. There are new ransomware strains. There's new methods of delivery. Now you have ransomware as a service where a novice could go online and launch a, a, a ransomware attack. How much time do CISOs spend, not necessarily, you know, in your organization, but just among your peer network, what you hear? You know, how big of an issue is this? Uh, is it something that's risen to the C-suite, maybe even the board level? So 
As far as ransomware, I think it's going to continue to be a problem as long as, you know, people are paying and the criminals can monetize that because it went from, you know, decrease, you know, give us money and we'll give you a way to decrypt your data. Then it went to give us money so we don't release your data. And even in some cases now it's give us money so we don't harass your executives to pay. So there, it's all these different techniques, I think, that have evolved. And as long as people are paying, I, I think that trend's going to continue. It definitely is when I talk to peers in this industry and outside industries, it's still an executive committee discussion, it's still a board discussion. And it's, you know, what do you do about it? How are you prepared for defending against it? And how are you prepared to recovering from it in the event it happens? And, you know, it goes from, what are the top methods that that can get into your company? Do you have those defenses for email and vulnerabilities? Do you have an incident response program? You know, are your backups vaulted? Are they immutable? And then are you regularly testing your ability to restore from those should the, you know, unfortunate event happen? Right. Well, you know, listening to you, Susan, what really worries me is the number of organizations who don't have somebody like you. So, you know, you're a Fortune 500 company. So clearly there's a, a certain structure there and, and experience level. But there are so many small to mid-sized companies out there where forget about a CISO. They don't have uh, a security staff. They're lucky if they have a qualified IT staff. So how do they prepare? How do they equip themselves for a potential ransomware attack? So I would say that, you know, you can look at, you know, even those small and medium business companies, there are solutions out there that are more, I'm going to call it that integrated platform stack where they can have, you know, some security features enabled to, to minimize the risk of something getting into their environment through an email or even through, you know, hygiene. And so, you know, you don't have to have, you know, the most fanciest capabilities to defend from that. There are just some basic capabilities that you have here, like vulnerability management. That's things we've been doing as professionals for years. And even email defenses, there's a lot of solutions out there that integrate right with, right with, right with cloud providers that you really could almost set it and forget it. So I would advise those folks to really look at what are the basics and, you know, can you get those from some small and medium business providers to protect yourself? And then if that's not something you want to invest in, you know, how are you backing up your data and then really keeping a copy of it so you can easily recover? That those are the kinds of things that that I would say for those folks, because some of those things may not really cost an arm and a leg but really help them in the event something bad happens. So I've saved, at least in my opinion, the most important for last, although all of this is really, really important. So I wanna circle back to people and now talk about employees. How important is it for organizations to train their people? And I'm talking about all people, whether they're in sales and marketing and support positions, they could be out in the field, you know, working as, uh, you know, construction, uh, you know, just the world's workforce. How important is it for us to train them? It's important for us to train people and really do it in a way that demystifies things. I've seen different things in my career where people make that too complicated, but they're not reaching the people in their message. So it, it's, I think employees know more than they did, you know, let's say five years ago, but the criminals do as well. And you have to really celebrate, you know, tell people like, hey, even if you think it's something bad or you don't know, see something, say something. You know, we've all heard over the years, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. Um, if it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't. 
So use like simple things like that and say, you know, here's where to report that. We will look into it um, and really get back to people on what you found. I think the other thing too is celebrate the people who report. Celebrate, give them accolades on your, you know, your company's intranet page, possibly even, you know, if you've got some kind of rewards program in your company, do something like that. So people see and feel comfortable that, hey, if I report something, I know it's going to be looked into and I know I'm going to understand why and really just reinforce, you know, if, if something's odd, it probably is odd. And then getting in front of the businesses and saying, you know, when something bad happens, here can be kind of the economic impacts. What's the dollar and cents at the bottom line to the company? And here's how we're really trying to prevent that. We've done a lot of things, but we still need the humans to do to do their part of the ecosystem. So I think it's incredibly important to just have people be aware, but do it in ways that really connects with the business and isn't just a bunch of technical jargon. So when it comes to training employees, is there anything in particular that you think is especially important or just anything that you'd want to highlight, whether it's the training programs themselves or the notion of fishing simulation, testing employees and how equipped they are, or, you know, a, a term we're starting to hear a lot about now or security nudges, you know, just different ways of putting out uh, reminders for employees. I think it's a couple of things. I think the fishing um, awareness training is helpful and really can you um, target that based on how someone may be being targeted? Are there capabilities out there that can make it very specific to that person and make it kind of harder? You can also use things like informing people that where that message is coming from. Is it coming from an external party? So, hey, caution, be more aware. In addition to that, how it's one thing to do phishing, but what if someone is actually doing vishing and coming in and trying to social engineer call centers or your employees directly for information. So how are you actually testing their phone capabilities, not only their emails, not only their way to, to respond to emails, but their way they respond to voice? And how are you doing that across the company as well? And I think the other point you just said is nuggets. Very, again, simple messages, but messages that are simple but have a big impact. And I think last but not least, you know, gamification can be fun, but also just the rewards telling people they did a good job, having that person in a news article in your intranet that says, I saw this email, here's why I thought it was odd, here's what I did, and allowing to really hear the voice of the people. Because typically when one person sees that, right, they tell a friend and they tell another friend, and then they're like, wait a minute, that person got recognized for doing that, I'm going to maybe be more cautious. So I think it touches all of those different avenues. So before we let you go, Susan, uh, any final words uh, that you'd like to share, whether it's with your uh, fellow CISOs and large corporations or, you know, the many small to mid-sized businesses out there who are struggling with cybersecurity? I think that I would leave you with it is going to, you know, continue to be a top area focus for large companies, small companies. It is here to stay as more people um, host in the cloud. Those are even kind of thing more difficult skills. So you have to rely on, you know, how do you know that was configured properly? So there's a lot of things you can do. Sometimes it is the simplest thing though, and making sure you're doing all of the basic things. Because when you look at data breach reports, it's often happening via phishing or patching or software currency or configuration. So make sure you're doing those. And I think the other thing too is 
to the other CISOs out there, regardless of what industry you're in, know your fellow CISOs. Um, there's not a human on the planet that doesn't like to help another human for the most part. And when you reach out and ask for help or how did you do this, uh, don't don't forget your network because your network can be very important to what you do next in your role and how you protect your company. Susan Kosky, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Steve and team. I'm Steve Morgan, founder of Cybersecurity Ventures and editor-in-chief at Cybercrime Magazine. Joining us today was Susan Kosky, Chief Security Officer at PNC, a Fortune 500 company and one of the largest diversified financial services institutions in the United States. This interview is sponsored by Know Before, the world's largest security awareness training and simulated phishing platform that helps you manage the ongoing problem of social engineering. To learn more about KnowBefore, visit knowbefore.com. You can keep up with all of our media at cybercrimemagazine.com.